Hey everybody, welcome to episode 156 of the Masterclass Podcast. My name is Cam Brennan, and of course I am joined by Dave Hogue. What's up? Yes, sir. Um, what is up? You know, actually very little is up, which I'm okay with. That is nice. Having having not much up is nice. Yeah. How about you? Oh, a lot a lot is up, Dave. <laughs> a lot a lot is up. I moved this weekend, which was stressful. I didn't sleep last night, which was stressful. I'm hanging in there though, man. I'm Good. hanging in there. Good. Doing doing what I gotta do to get stuff done. Nice. Going to Detroit this weekend. To surprise my mom on her 60th birthday. Don't worry. I don't think she listens. And also, this won't be out before then. So the surprise <laughs> won't be ruined. <laughs> yeah, I guess you kind of have control over that. Exactly. And, and now, now I'll know in, in two weeks when this comes out, if she doesn't respond, that she doesn't listen. And then I'll just cry quietly. In the <laughs> True. No, I know, I know for a fact she doesn't listen. You know why, Dave? Why? Because she told me she doesn't. And here's why. She gave me a reason. It's like, I don't need a reason. Like, you don't have to listen to my podcast. You know, it's not a requirement of being my mother. <laughs> She's like, well, it's just like, it's just like two friends having a conversation about the Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is, Mom. She goes, yeah, I don't really want that. I want like 10 to 15 minutes of like solid teaching, and, and that's what I want. And I'm like, well, then this is not the show for you, Mom. And I'm glad that we both agree on that. <laughs> yeah, it's just two friends talking about the Bible. I don't want that. All right, well, you have, you have summed up the show and decided it is not for you. Yeah, fair enough. We're going to continue on in the book of James, and we're going to finish chapter one today. Mm -hmm. And that means that we're reading and discussing verses 26 and 27. Would you do the honors? Yes. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here's the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this, among many, many, many things, is you know how people like religion is like a bad word nowadays? That's exactly what I had was thinking. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Mm-hmm. It's not religion, guys. It's a relationship. Yeah. Well, I understand what the second person is saying. I don't know what the first person is saying. <laughs> I'm not religious, but I am very spiritual. I, okay, great. Good for you. I don't know what you mean. That means you just believe what you want to believe when you want to believe it, and there isn't any structure to it? Good luck with that. What I like about this is that James doesn't treat religion as a naughty word. No. In fact, he, he purports it as a good thing to be religious. Which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. So if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Okay, Dave, let's be honest about this one. You're a police officer. Mm -hmm. I grew up with people that cussed like sailors. Mm -hmm. I feel like this one might be something that we, uh, you know, have some experience with and not bridling the tongue in certain circumstances, if I may project. Sure. 
And so I just, I think it's interesting that this concept of not bridling your tongue is tied with deceiving your heart and making your religion worthless. Cause like there's, um, I'm going to paraphrase here cause I don't remember the exact reference, but essentially the mouth speaks, uh, what, how, how does it go? From whatever the heart overflows, the mouth speaks or essentially like you don't say stuff you don't mean mm-hmm. generally speaking. And so if you get angry and the first thing out of your mouth is cussing, well, then that's reflective of, of where your heart's at. Or if, And it's not even just cussing. It's also like talking bad about people or gossiping or cutting people down or just being mean, right? Like if, if the words that come out of your mouth are intended to cut other people down or to express your non-righteous anger, and that reflects the state of your heart, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, every time I read this, I'm like, yep, okay, got, got a lot of work to do in this area. <laughs> and so I've, I've actually been tracking my swearing as much as I can mm-hmm. on my phone. And when I started tracking it, I gave myself seven swears a day, which seems like a lot. <laughs> and then I went down to five, and now I'm down to three. Oh, really? That doesn't mean I hit three every day, but I hit it more often than not meaning I, I don't swear more than three times, but I've been stuck on three for a long time. Like getting from seven to five was pretty easy. Getting from five to three is a little harder. Getting from three to less than three is proving very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating because it's one of those things where it's like, I'm an adult. I should be able to control what comes out of my mouth and how it comes out of my mouth. I don't know. I'm interested to see, to hear what you think about this first verse. Honestly, so yeah, you are correct. Being uh, in the profession that I'm in, cussing is a fairly common practice. So I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to say cussing is okay because I don't know one way or the other. But, and I don't know if I'm making excuses here. But when I think about controlling our tongue, not lying is more important. Mm. Yeah. You know, not being a gossip, not slandering, not. And so I feel like James talks about this again in terms of, I don't know if it's in chapter two. Is it chapter two with the. Uh, Chapter three. Chapter three. So yeah, he talks about taming of the tongue. And so we'll spend a lot of time taming the tongue. Uh, And, you know, the verse that does stand out to me is how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a Mm -hmm. fire world of unrighteousness. So anyway, I, and I, I somewhat feel like I'm, I'm being a broken record and, and harping on things that we've talked about before of just, I really think we focus on some of the wrong things when it comes to what, you know, what is religion? What is having faith in God? Because I would say I have no control over my tongue. <laughs> And so, um, whether it be cussing or, you know, and again, I'm not, I don't believe I, you know, lie all the time, but I certainly do lie. I certainly talk about people. Um, you know, I would say to some degree I could, I would be described as being two faced or, you know, saying one thing to one person, then saying another thing to another person. And, and yet this is just, to me is not something that I feel like we hold up as a value in Christianity. Maybe that's not even a, a true statement, but so yeah, I, I'm stumbling today. <laughs> My tongue's not 
doing many favors. What did you mean by that? That is something that we don't uphold as a value. When it says uh, to bridle their bridle his tongue, uh, and I and I suppose to, um, I, I just don't think we. So so the word that keeps coming to my mind is or the words is self control. And I just don't think that we do a very good job of of self control. It, it really just is kind of like people can say whatever they want to say, and there's no consequences for it, or there's not a there's really not a standard for that. Uh, the way we would be if if someone, you know, I don't even know what would compare it to, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Make any sense? Like I think you're right to a certain extent, right? But like. You know, there are certain cultural boundary lines and, you know, religious boundary lines that we still can't cross, right, without offending somebody. I get what you're saying. Like, the line between what a Christian can and can't say or can and can't do and what a non-Christian can and can't say or can and can't do is becoming increasingly blurred in certain contexts. Yeah, And I think... That has always been the case, and there have been historically times where the church has rallied hard against that, and those are the times when some of the best uh, literature and theology and doctrine has come about that still holds weight mm-hmm. today, right? You think of times like, oh, I don't know, the Great Awakening, the Reformation, you know, things that have capital thes in <laughs> front of them in, in terms of history. And and the people that were involved, and the and the places that were involved, and the the literature again that still rings true today, and you know everyone. I shouldn't say everyone. There's a lot of people that like plan revivals in hopes that they might be part of the next big one. And it's just like you know, I don't really ever think that revival, <laughs> planned revival. It's like a oxymoron. Right. Yeah. The concept remains. Like there there are times in history when. The church rallies so hard counterculturally that it stands out as like a tentpole uh, of what the faith mm-hmm. should be. And I think we are in a time over these last 20 or 30 years where the blending of American culture and Christianity in certain places has gotten so intertwined and so combined that it's hard to tell the two apart. And that doesn't mean that America has become so Christian. It means that Christianity in this part of the world has become so American, right? And that's only in certain places. And there are other places where they are so far apart that it's very, very hard to find true faith, I guess is such a, oh, that's a loaded term. (laughs) Anyways, enough, enough political commentary. I love the bluntness that James uses. If you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart and your religion is worthless. Mm-hmm. Counter to that, religion that is pure and undefiled, also, you know, not worthless before God. So religion that God sees as pure and undefiled is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Which leans into that whole don't where culture and, and, and religion are one and the same, like that's probably not where we want to be in most cases. Like now, are, are there certain places where that's good, like valuing human life? Yes, of course, that's great. We should all value human life. But like where religion and culture 
start to agree on things that don't jive with religion and religion caves to culture, then that's where we need to stand up, right, for what Scripture says. But here it's like, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep yourself unstained from the world. Two things, Mm -hmm. right? Take what you believe and go do something with it. Go meet people in need where they are in their need and be with them. The, the extrapolation then, what it doesn't say here, but the extrapolation would be and do what you can to meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Because in other places in scripture, it's like, what good does it say to someone who's hungry? Oh, go and, you know, have a warm meal. No, give them a warm meal. Right. Let them into your home. Let them in, like, do what you can to meet the needs of people. Period. Mm-hmm. Then also keep yourself unstained from the world, which is proving to be very tricky. Right. Because the world and its ways are very alluring, right? It's the sexy lady in the corner calling you, not wisdom. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if we can go back to Proverbs, wisdom is the old lady in the corner who knows all of the things, but isn't necessarily charismatic, isn't necessarily sexy, isn't necessarily alluring or tempting, right? But the world is out there showing you all she's got and is a lot more tempting and alluring mm-hmm. and sexy than doing the right thing. And that's, I think, the, you know, it goes hand in hand with, with taming your tongue, now that I think about it, right, is doing the right thing even when it's harder. Taming your tongue is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Being slow to anger and quick to listen is hard to do. Mm-hmm. Being unstained from the world while living in it is hard to do. Taking action, going to visit orphans and widows in their reflection and meeting needs is hard to do because you have to put other people before yourself. And so, like, there's this trend here that James has been hammering for the last, you know, chapter of see the easy thing, mm-hmm. acknowledge that it's easy, but it's also not the best thing or the right thing. And instead of going and taking that bait, make the wise choice, make the correct choice, do the hard thing, Mm -hmm. make the wise decision, choose to live a life of purpose and wisdom as opposed to a life that is decided on the whims of the world. Mm -hmm. And in theory, that sounds great. But in practice, based on my experience, it's really, really hard. Oh, yeah. And I tend to not choose that more often than not because I'm a glutton for gluttony. Mm -hmm. I like pleasure. I like comfort. I like ease of life. I like things to be easy. I like them to be done for me. I like there to be not a lot of effort to get what I want. But that leads to childish behavior and childish thinking and childish tantrums and all of that stuff. It does not lead to maturity. It doesn't lead to self-discipline or self-control. Like you said earlier, it doesn't lead to a better life. The Bible talks about like being refined in the refiner's fire by God, right? God molding us as we are the, he's the potter, we are the clay, like all all of these metaphors, Mm -hmm. right? Those all entail pain and metamorphosis and intent and 
a sword or gold has to be refined in fire and melted down so the purity the impurities can be gone and so then it can be formed and molded and banged and clay has to be molded and shaped and bent and warped and then cooked in a fire and plants have to be pruned and trimmed and cut off and reintegrated into new plants all of the metaphors in the scripture come with it's going to be really hard we're even teaching about psalm 23 at youth group tomorrow night the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me, he leads me uh, through green pastures and, and lie by still waters. Yet, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the path to those places can be led, like you have to be led through some treacherous things in order to get where God wants you to be. All of the metaphors in the Bible that talk about what God wants for us and what it takes to get there. The, the, the uh, path to life is narrow, and if you find it, the path to death is wide, and it's a lot more mm-hmm. fun, right? Paraphrase. This is not an uncommon thread in Scripture, this idea, this concept that the worldly life is easy and open and wide and tempting, but the life that God calls us to is so different. Mm -hmm. You know, you would think, Dave, being somewhat intelligent human beings that we are, that I just listed off like nine different times in the Bible where it talks about this. And yet, every single freaking day, <laughs> it is still a struggle for me right. to choose the right thing and not the easy thing. Mm-hmm. That is very frustrating. <laughs> yes, it is. I would absolutely agree with that. I get For me, that's one of the things I think I, I just don't even get. Like, okay, God, can't you meet us like partial way, halfway? Which I know... Dude, he met us us (laughs) 99.999999% our way. Yes. But again, and I, you know, I come back to the whole, it just would be nice to be able to see him, to hear him, to experience him, which even as I'm saying that, I know that there's, that's, you know, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the scriptures. Well, and we even have the history of the people that saw him and met with him and ate dinner with him and learned from him and still thought, nah, not my Messiah. Hashtag still waiting. <laughs> yeah. But I get what you're, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I think the thing that I just keep coming back to, and we've said this already, you've said this, is just, you know, it's easy to talk about it. It's easy to run our mouth. It's a very different thing to actually live it out and to do it. and. Um, I don't think it's, it's, you know, this is a so specific that James is talking about, you know, only orphans and only widows, but he's truly talking about those who are helpless, who are dependent on others to provide for them. It's not easy. There, there is a, you know, an effort that has to be made, uh, in those situations. And, you know, I, I live in Kansas and the number of kids that are in foster care just continues to grow every year. And it's a significant number. I think it's around 9,000, you know, 9,000 kids that are in foster care right now. I don't know. There's like 2 million people that live in the state. So it wouldn't take that many Christians stepping up and doing something. Yeah. And yet it, it just, it doesn't happen. Like it, it truly doesn't, it just doesn't happen. And that like is kind of mind boggling to me of, you know, we've got 2 million people in this state. Okay. Let's say 10% are Christians. So that's 200,000. 
and you got less than 10,000 kids. I mean, that is such a small percentage of why can't we just get, and you know, I know there's a bit of of a revolving door with this. And I know there's a lot of factors that it's just not that simple, but it, it is. I just am like, boy, you would think that if, if we as Christians were really doing what God had called us to do, there would be no orphans. You know, there would be no kids in foster care. And so, I don't know. I don't have the answers. <laughs> That's rough, thinking about it. When you put, it's, it's one thing to have a intellectual, you know, conversation about like, oh, all these ideas. But when you start putting the lives of kids in the place of your argument, it's, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it takes on an incredible weight, uh, and I think that's appropriate. Like when James wrote this, when Jesus sat with prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and blind people and lame people and and healed those people and and did what he wasn't supposed to do from the religious standpoint, like it was on purpose. Yeah, it was intentional. It was because. God cares about everybody. Mm-hmm. It is definitely one thing to talk about in theory and definitely another to talk about in practicality when it comes to the lives of kids. Yeah. And, you know, like I, and this is, I don't want to totally belabor this point, but, you know, 9,000 kids in a population of 2 million. That, you know, I don't look at that and go, oh, that takes a miracle for that to get fixed. That's that's literally one in every 200 people saying we're going to do something about this. And it just seems crazy to me yeah. that there's not I I mean it it's a simple fix. And I mean, I, we don't have a foster kid. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that we've done uh, our part when it comes to that. No, but you adopted. We could certainly do more. You know, and it's not like we're in a situation where we don't do it. Because we can't do it. You know, it's not like it's a financial burden for us. It's not like our house couldn't handle another kid. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to, you know, cause that's the other thing is, is, you know, I'm, I, I am fairly familiar with a lot of kids that are in the foster care and it's a lot of work. So anyway, I, like I said, I don't, I don't want to beat that point to death, but it, it's just, you know, there are some things that I look at in the world and I'm like, okay, that would take a miracle for it to, to be fixed. And this just seems like it's a, an easy solution and easy of just, you know, one in every 200 people stepping up and doing something. So, you know, and for that matter, I think about how we kind of send our old people to the, we send them off to die. We send them off, we separate them from their families. I mean, my grandma's 96 and I, I actually think she's right where she wants to be. So that's uh, right. But like how much, how much do we lose from not having intergenerational living in the same house? Right. I was lucky in that I grew up around the corner from my mom's parents, an eight minute drive, not even like maybe a six minute drive from my mm-hmm. dad's mom. So like my grandparents, while they didn't live with us, were super close and we were over there, especially my mom's uh, dad, a lot. Like I would just walk over there. That's cool. Um, And so I got in like, you know, my grandpa would take us golfing. I would clean the boat every Saturday Mm -hmm. in the summer. I would walk over there and 
play chess and practice putting on his carpet, <laughs> do puzzles, you know, paint the fence, like whatever. Um, I was over there a ton. And then later in life, he would always come over our house, just stop by on the way home from wherever, have a glass of wine, sit and chat for an hour, and then go back home. That was really, really important mm-hmm. to me as a kid and even as a high school student was to have my grandpa around right, and my grandma. And I just wonder if by shipping the older generation off to these homes, like what, what are we as their children and what are their grandchildren losing from not having them present? Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but it seems like nursing homes are a modern. Invention. Oh yeah. <laughs> Big money. Right. But also like we lived for millennia without, without them. Yeah. Kennedy better get used to me have used to having me around. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yes. All right. Any other thoughts on these two verses, Dave? You know, the the only other thing that has been kind of running through my mind is I met someone today who learned that I used to be a pastor, that I used to work in the church. And someone you work with? No, they all know. Like I don't make I pretty much tell everybody that. So, no, I met someone today and they found out that I was used to be a pastor and the Christian ease just began to flow. Oh boy. You know, I think my thing in that is okay, that's fine. Uh makes my skin skin crawl a little bit. Why did it have to take him, you know, if that's really who you are, why would you not talk that way all the time? And this verse just kind of has that element to it of me for me of you know we say things to make ourselves look good when it's when it's appropriate and when it it benefits us um i would hope that i'm consistent in in how i approach that and honestly there were just little phrases that like it really almost made me uncomfortable the things that he was saying and i'm just like oh my gosh like essentially wanted to let m- make sure i knew of I don't know. It just took a turn very quickly when he learned that. And I just made me uncomfortable. And so I think that we can do the same thing there too. And I know I'm guilty of it. We all are. I just, I hope I consistently talk about God and Jesus to people. I'm less excited to talk about Jesus to somebody that may already know who he is versus talking to somebody that doesn't know who he is. This has been episode 156 of the Masterclass. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you want to get in touch, you can do so. There's going to be links in the show notes to uh, get in touch with us if you so desire. Uh, Also, you can leave a review on iTunes. It it can be a one-star. It can be a five-star. Anywhere in between, just as long as it's honest. That would be awesome. Yep. Uh, I think that's going to do it until uh, next episode. David? Until next time. Auf Wiedersehen.